You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Is your business's phone menu sounding a little out of date or like you just grabbed Carol from accounting to do it? No shade on Carol there. Well, then you need to get a new one recorded by Moxie LaBouche voiceovers. Remember, my listeners get 50% off their purchase. You can email moxie at yourbrainonfacts.com. Alarming things can happen on live TV. A broadcast of a concert on Iranian TV a few years ago absolutely scandalized some viewers. People began taking pictures of their TVs and posting it to social media. Am I dreaming or what? tweeted one man, unable to believe his eyes. What had been on the screen during this celebration of the Prophet Muhammad's birthday that caused such a fervor? Was it a depiction of Muhammad? A woman in immodest clothes? A controversial political protest? People watching were shocked when they saw musical instruments being played. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Let me open the show today by dividing the room. Bagpipes are awesome. I used to sell my homemade soaps at an Irish festival here in town, and to set up my booth on a cool, misty morning as a single piper began to play would always give me goosebumps. And don't go saying that bagpipes are Scottish, not Irish, either. The instrument that every sound designer relies on for funeral scenes in movies goes way, way back and was created in distant, disparate places. Egypt, Rome, India, Italy, Hungary, you name it. There are ancient Roman coins that depict Nero playing the bagpipes. So, while we can debate whether or not Nero fiddled while Rome burned, hinging mostly on what the definition of fiddle is, it seems clear he played the bagpipes. It's not clear when bagpipes made it to Scotland, But we do know that at the time, they had only a single drone, the pipe that makes the characteristic constant background note, until the 1500s when a second drone was added, and the last drone was added in the 1700s. All of the chiefs of the Highland clans employed pipers for both peacetime and war, spurring their troops on to victory. Until 1745. Bagpipes were linked to Jacobitism, the movement that sought to remove James II from the British throne and restore the Catholic Stuart kings. The Jacobites saw the bagpipes as an icon of Scottish national belonging and military pride, while their loyalist opponents saw it, at best, as a risible accessory for unflattering caricatures, and at worst, as an instrument of war. Carrying pipes was viewed the same as carrying a weapon, and a York man was tried for treason. The court declared, quote, 
No Highland regiment ever marched without a piper, and therefore his bagpipes, in the eyes of the law, was an instrument of warfare. And sentenced him to death. But John Gibson, author of Traditional Gaelic Bagpiping, 1745-1945, said it didn't happen that way. The bagpipe ban, not the execution, that part happened. In fact, the execution of the piper, James Reed, might have contributed to the muddling of the historical waters. Some of the confusion seems to stem from the Disarming Act of 1746, which would get an amendment, quote, restraining the use of the Highland dress. This outlawed tartan and plaid, but didn't say anything about bagpipes. James Reed may well have been a piper, but that wasn't why he got the short drop and sudden stop. He'd taken part in Jacobite rebellions, and his conviction had nothing to do with the Disarming Act. So a case could be made that the 1745 ban didn't actually happen. That makes that one line from Braveheart... What are they doing? Saying goodbye in their own way. Playing outlawed tunes on outlawed pipes. Twice as wrong since that set over four centuries earlier. The bagpipes were verifiably banned in the 1940s in Poland. Germans forbade the Poles to play their pipes for a similar reason, because of its ability to stir up nationalist spirit. Just think about that the next time you say it sounds like a bag of cats in a garbage disposal. In fairness, though, you're not completely alone in your entirely wrong hatred of bagpipes. In 1897, Belgium sent an expedition to Antarctica with the intention of being the first party to overwinter there. Even in modern Antarctica with modern transportation, a lot of planning goes into keeping a crew alive. If you're in charge of the food, you might have to plan out a year's worth of meals and order your supplies 18 months in advance. And that's today. So imagine what it was like more than 120 years ago. Part of the plan of the RV Belgica, that being the ship that they took, was to hunt and eat penguins, which would not only provide them with fat and protein, but also vitamin C to ward off scurvy. Catching animals perfectly adapted to the harshest climate on Earth turned out to be much easier than they thought. The supplies of the ship included a few musical instruments to maintain morale and whatnot. Apparently, all you had to do was play the trumpet and the penguins would come right up to you. When one man took out his banjo and played It's a Long Way to Tipperary, a whole raft of penguins, which is the collective noun, gathered to listen. The reception was somewhat more critical for the bagpiper. The penguins fled in terror and plunged back into the sea. Tremendous tinkerer Benjamin Franklin had been so captivated by performances on musical glasses, where you rub your fingers around the rim of glasses with different amounts of water in them to produce different notes. It was big in the 18th century, and Franklin wanted to see if he could make it even better. He saw that, before each concert, the performer would tune the instrument by filling each glass with just the right amount of water. That sounds like a faff. And if you watched Miss Congeniality, by choice or because it was on in the waiting room, you know that musical glasses are one of the few instruments that can be ruined by being mistaken for craft services. 
In a letter written in 1762 to the Italian scientist Giambattista Beccaria, Franklin described a musical instrument he had designed that made use of 37 cups. To help you visualize it, rather than cups, think bowls, each one a little bit smaller than the last. Picture them in a neat stack. Now imagine a rod going down through the lot, turning it on its side, and having them spin on that rod as an axle, thanks to a foot pedal and flywheel. Below our sideways stack, a pan might be added to catch the water dripping off the bowls from the player's fingers. Would it have worked if they'd spun it through the water instead? I wondered. Franklin wrote that his new invention seems peculiarly adaptive to Italian music. Especially that of the soft and plaintive kind, its tones are incomparably sweet beyond those of any other. That they may be swelled and softened at pleasure by stronger or weaker pressures of the finger, and continued to any length, and that the instrument, being once well tuned, never again wants tuning. In honor of your musical language, I have borrowed from it the name of this instrument, calling it the harmonica. Harken to an instrument whose sound is so ethereal it was dubbed by some the angel's organ. <laughs> <laughs> The harmonica was popular with the public and received the serious attention of many 18th-century musicians. Its music was used as a therapeutic tool by Franz Mesmer, the man who gave us the theory of animal magnetism and whose name became a verb for hypnosis. Mesmerize during the heyday of his Parisian practice in the 1780s. Over in the Palace of Versailles, no less than Marie Antoinette was playing it. Franklin himself enjoyed performing on the glass harmonica and seemed to always have one in his living quarters. Mademoiselle Brion de Jouy, a dear friend of Franklin's despite being 40 years his junior, was an accomplished musician and composer, and her harmonica can still be seen in the Bakken Museum in Minneapolis. Do I have any Minnesotans out there listening today? Give me a holler over on our social media: Facebook and Instagram slash Your Brain on Facts and Twitter at Brain on Facts Pod. If you want to share your experience having been to the Bakken Museum or anything you'd like to share, really, you can also join us in our Facebook group, the Brainiacs Break Room, or on the R slash Your Brain on Facts subreddit. Not everyone was a fan of the glass harmonica's ethereal sound, though. Rumors began to waft around that the music induced madness in otherwise healthy people. German playwright, musicologist, and critic Friedrich Rochlitz wrote, "There may be various reasons for the scarcity of harmonica players. Principally, the almost universally shared opinion is that playing it is damaging to the health, that it excessively stimulates the nerves." Plunges the player into a nagging depression and hence into a dark and melancholy mood, which is extra funny because melancholy was what Mesmer claimed to be curing. That it is an apt method for slow self-annihilation. Many physicians, with whom I have discussed this matter, say the sharp, penetrating tone runs like a spark. 
through the entire nervous system, forcibly shaking it up and causing nervous disorders. These fears even made their way into one manufacturer's instruction manual in 1788. If you have been upset by harmful novels, false friends, or perhaps a deceiving girl, then abstain from playing the harmonica. It will only upset you even more. There are people of this kind, of both sexes, who must be advised not to study the instrument, in order that their state of mind should not be aggravated. When rumor began to spread that such maladies could be attributed to the instrument, panic erupted. Some thought that it had magic powers and could communicate with or summon the dead. The glass harmonica was blamed for domestic disputes, premature births, even convulsions in dogs and cats. Some harmonica players became ill and had to stop playing the instrument. They complained of muscle spasms, nervousness, cramps, and dizziness. A few listeners were also subject to ill effects. After an incident in Germany where a child died during a performance, and about which I can find no more information, the harmonica was actually banned in a number of towns. The instrument soon fell out of favor and was forgotten by all but a few. In its heyday, though, several 18th-century composers wrote for the glass harmonica, including, most notably, Beethoven, notable not only for being one of the few names on the list that I actually recognized, but also because there is speculation the glass harmonica might have killed him. So that you know where your fingers are relative to this stack of samey-looking bowls, a metallic band is added around the rim every certain number of bowls, made mostly or exclusively of lead. Even if that metallic band wasn't lead, the glass itself might well be lead crystal. Don't worry about your fancy crystal glasses that you only drink from twice a year. As long as they weren't made hundreds of years ago and you're not rubbing them against your skin for hours on end, you'll be fine. A study in California, which was given access to a sample of Beethoven's hair, found the composer had a concentration of lead 100 times higher than what is normal today. Researchers commissioned by San Jose State University say it's virtually certain that Beethoven had lead poisoning, to give it its technical name, plumbism, which could explain his illnesses, strange eccentricities, maybe his deafness, and quite possibly his death. A 582-strand sample of his hair, taken just after his death at age 56 in 1827, was purchased at auction for $7,300 in 1994 by Ira Brilliant, founder of the Center for Beethoven Studies at San Jose, and Alfred Guevara, a surgeon from Nogales, Arizona. Their findings are no smoking gun, though. In Beethoven's time, you couldn't swing a piccolo without hitting something containing what we know now to be dangerous levels of lead. Pewter cups, plates and utensils, lead windows, water pipes, paint, even candles. So maybe Beethoven was done in by the glass harmonica, or maybe he just chewed on his pencils. We'll never know for sure. Unless the harmonica really can be used to talk to the dead, and one of the few dozen players in the world can reach him to ask. The next instrument to find itself on the naughty list is the harmonium. Oh, you say, if the harmonica was so interesting, how strange and fancy will the harmonium be? It, it's an organ. 
Sorry to preemptively harsh your buzz, it's just an organ. The reason it was banned is interesting, though. It was banned for being too British, even though it was created by a Dane, inspired by the Chinese, by way of an Italian, and then modified by an Indian. The prototype of the harmonium was designed by Christian Gottlieb Kratzenstein, a professor, not of music, but physiology, at the University of Copenhagen, who could often be found experimenting with the effects of electricity on the human body. He was fascinated by the sound and mechanisms of the sheng, a Chinese free reed instrument that Marco Polo had introduced to Europe centuries earlier. For those unfamiliar with the sheng, imagine you grabbed a double fistful of boba tea straws and artistically staggered their heights, then blew into your thumbs. It sounds weird, I'll mark you, but when you Google it, you'll say, actually, that's exactly what that looks like. Kratzenstein built a small pneumatic organ fitted with free reeds, and others were soon copying and improving on his design. The harmonium was a small version of the kind of organ you might hear in church, or you just don't hear enough in rock music anymore that produced sound when foot-operated bellows pushed air through a pressure-equalizing air reservoir, causing metal reeds, fixed at one end and free at the other, hence the name, to vibrate. Harmoniums were lighter in weight than traditional organs, and therefore easier to transport and less likely to be damaged in transit, so they were soon exported all over. Being smaller meant they also cost less, so you didn't have to be in the top 1% to have a harmonium in the living room. Heat and humidity didn't affect it the way they might a piano, so it was also suitable to ship to all the lovely tropical places that Europeans had imposed themselves on and colonized throughout Asia, Africa, the Caribbean, and most notably for us today, the Indian subcontinent. It really caught on in India, where one instrument maker, Dwarkanath Ghos of Dwarkan and Sons in Kolkata gave it a full makeover in 1875. His version was half the size, had drones that would make it suitable for Indian classical music, had a scale-changing mechanism, was cheaper to make and repair, and could be played while sitting on the floor, as is the custom for Indian musicians in concert. Even though prominent names in music were soon writing pieces for the harmonium and including it in operas, others viewed it as an agent of unwelcome foreign musical sensibility. You see, it's all to do with microtones. You know the eight-note octave, do, re, mi, and so on. Imagine the octave divided into 12 notes, as you have with the white and black keys on a piano. But the notes between those notes are semitones. And if you squeeze a note between those notes, it's a microtone. Southern Indian Carnatic music scoffs at the microtones and divides their octave into between 22 and a boggling 66 notes. 
Regardless of what your maximum number of microtones is, it's thought to be the smallest difference in tone that the human ear can actually hear. So instead of singing notes in a plain manner, like we add some curves and slights and make it sound like the recently relaunched YouTube channel This Exists did a great video about it, and I'll put a link in the show notes. Indian singers were traditionally accompanied by musicians playing the sarangi, a short-necked bowed instrument thought to sound like the human voice. The sarangi is difficult to master and needs constant retuning. Plus, it carried an association with courtesans, which all helped the harmonium to gain market share. But the sarangi could provide semi and microtones with just a tiny move of the player's fingers, and harmoniums, with their metaphorically and physically rigid keyboard, could not. Also, they'd been introduced to the country by an invading nation who in 1905 thought it would be keen to split Bengal in half like it was Berlin. Bengal, where three million people would starve to death a generation later, thanks in no small part to Winston Churchill. But you already know that because you've been reading the Your Brain on Facts book, available from local booksellers now. Visit bookshop.org for all the convenience of ordering online, but still supporting local businesses. The fact that it had been completely re-engineered in Kolkata didn't seem to matter. All India Radio, which at the time had the monopoly over commercial radio broadcasts in India, banned the instrument from the airwaves beginning in 1940. The attempt to banish the sound of the harmonium was part of an attempt to define a national sound for India, distinct from the West. The die-hard harmonium heads weren't deterred, though. They appreciated the way you could always get the note the way you expect it to sound, unlike the fussy and finicky sarangi. Harmoniums were also a heavy hitter in teaching music. All India Radio partially lifted the ban in 1970 for classical music only. To this day, they'll allow a harmonium as part of an orchestra, but not as a soloist. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. 
Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. If you didn't like my devotion to the bagpipes at the top of the show, you're going to hate how hard I stand this next instrument. There's no more talking. We're just going to listen to this. And then the night court theme. And then that one song from the 80s. You know which one. While the saxophone has indeed been banned, I want to talk to you about its obvious once it's been pointed out shadow ban. That's a term used on social media for when someone's content is not officially being quashed, it's simply not being displayed. Why aren't there any saxophones in orchestras? You've got piccolos that sound like dental drills, oboes that sound like ducks trying to tell you about their problems, and the triangle that glorified coat hanger. And yet somehow the sax doesn't make the cut? Kick down down to the marching band. The most common reason given is because they were invented much later than the standard orchestra. Well, so was the tuba, and it sounds like a slowed-down fart. Some contend that the sound color of the saxophone doesn't blend well with the other woodwinds on account of, not to be reductive, they aren't made of wood. Some late Romantic and modern composers did write for saxophone, but they highlight how the sax stands out. At the end of the day, there isn't one clear reason why the saxophone was omitted. It may simply be one of those things that had trouble catching on. It took absolute donkey's years for the bendy bit of baritone to make space for itself in the musical world since it was created in the 1840s. The name and the noise come from Belgian instrument maker Adolf Sax, and inventing the saxophone doesn't even make the top 10 most interesting things that happened to him. As a boy, Sax was struck on the head by a slate roof tile, swallowed a needle, fell down a flight of stairs onto a stone floor, toppled onto a burning stove, got blown across a room by a gunpowder explosion, fell in a river and was found downstream, floating face down, drank some sulfuric acid, and, in a separate incident, a mix of white lead and copper oxide by accident. If you want to hear those in more detail, meet me over at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts for the first bonus mini-episode of this month. You'll also get to vote on next week's topic, and depending on the tier, there's a t-shirt in it for you. Sax could play the flute and clarinet at an early age, and he began tinkering with improved designs for them in his early teens. So Sax managed somehow to survive to adulthood, and played around with different instrument designs, getting into a stone groove after he made a clarinet from brass, essentially a soprano saxophone. Sax invented not one saxophone, but 14, 
or at least that's the number of patents on saxophones he got. They range from an F contrabass all the way to an E-sharp sopranino. It didn't exactly turn the world of music on its ear, but a number of notable composers fell in love with it. Hector Berlioz said, It cries, sighs, and dreams. It possesses a crescendo and can gradually diminish until it is only an echo of an echo. I know of no other instrument that possesses this particular capacity to reach the outer limits of audible sound. The saxophone can be delicate like a woodwind and blast like a brass, the latter characteristic being why it was so easily adopted by military and marching bands. In 1842, Sax and his hybrid instrument moved to France, a place famous for innovation, especially in the arts. That's sarcasm, as evinced by the fact that the French instrument makers set about destroying Sax, stealing his designs, burning down his factory, and trying to kill him for good measure. Our bastion of good luck went bankrupt twice and died penniless. He didn't even live long enough to see Pope Pius X ban saxophones in 1903. And officially, that ban is still in effect. In churches. It's not like all Catholics are fish on Friday and saxophones never. The employment of the piano is forbidden in church, as is also that of noisy or frivolous instruments such as drums, cymbals, bells, and the like. Only in special cases, with the consent of the ordinary, will it be permissible to admit wind instruments, limited in number, judiciously used, and proportions to the size of the place provided the composition and accompaniment be written in grave and suitable style, and conform in all respects to that proper to the organ. Sunday morning might have been saxophone deficient, but soon you could hear all the sax you wanted on a Saturday night. It was about the time of Pius's anti-sax bull that nightclubs and dance hall bands started getting into them. And they were really into them. More saxophones were sold in the mid to late 20s than electric guitars were sold in the 1960s. The saxophone became an integral part of jazz music. And that was a problem for certain people in the Weimar Republic. In 1927, Ernst Krenick's opera, Johnny Spelt Auf, or Johnny Plays, contained jazz numbers that caused protests among some right-wing ethnic nationalist groups. In 1930, American musician Henry Cowell wrote in the Melos Journal magazine that jazz interpreted a mixture of African-American and Jewish elements. The fundamentals of jazz are the syncopation and rhythmic accents of the Negro, Their modernization is the work of New York Jews. So jazz is Negro music seen through the eyes of the Jews. I don't need to tell you who that thinking clicked with. And further, the modern music of the 1930s was viewed as a 
political weapon of the Jews. Jazz and the solidly jazz-aligned saxophone were slapped with the label Entartete Kunst, degenerate art, which saw many art forms banned, as well as being called Nigermusik. You can work out the translation on that one for yourself. A 1938 poster advertising a degenerate music exhibition featured a monkey-like caricature wearing a Star of David and playing the saxophone. In 1930, the Minister of the Interior made a decree called Against the Negro Culture for Our German Heritage. In 1932, pandering to the Nazis, the national government banned all public performances by black musicians. After Hitler gained power in 33, a full legal ban on jazz was issued, with the head of the Reich's radio declaring, As of today, I decree a definitive ban on the Negro jazz for the entire German radio. It became difficult and dangerous to play the saxophone in Germany. The Nazis sadly weren't alone at this time. Stalin's Soviet Union also persecuted the saxophone. There, jazz was not only seen as the music of, by, and for black people, but also the embodiment of bourgeois American imperialist culture. Saxophonists had to hand over their instruments, and players were arrested, imprisoned, and even exiled. And it won't surprise you that these weren't the only examples of music and instruments important to black culture being outlawed. On the slave plantations of the antebellum South, they outlawed drums. Remember in episode 129, Never Surrender, when I talked about the Stono Rebellion, the one that got the very Spartacus-slash-Game of Thrones outcome, and how the rebels gathered enslaved people as they moved? That didn't just happen. It was coordinated in advance. The plantations were many miles apart from each other, and there was no way for enslaved people to communicate. Except with drums. The language of the talking drum has existed in a number of forms throughout the various and varied cultures of Africa, branching out from oral tradition. Talking drums can produce a range of tonalities and were used for conducting ceremonies, relating history, even to recite poetry. During the 16 and 1700s, Africans enslaved in North America used drums to communicate with each other as they had back home, sending messages over long distances, with the added bonus that the white people couldn't understand it in the slightest. This way, communities separated on different plantations throughout a region could stay in contact. That might not have seemed like an issue for the slaveholders, until Stono. Then it became clear what all that drumming could actually do. It was made illegal for any enslaved person to play or even have a drum. It is absolutely necessary to the safety of this province that all due care be taken to restrain Negroes from using or keeping of drums, which may call together or give sign or notice to one another of their wicked designs and purposes, reads the Slave Code of South Carolina, 1740. Starting on the plantations of the Carolinas and Georgia, this ban soon spread nearly everywhere. But a human spirit that survives kidnapping and transportation couldn't be stifled by silly old laws. The great thing about using percussion to communicate 
is that anything you hit, broadly speaking, is a drum, even the human body. Called Padding Juba, for a slave who had been executed, it's part of the ancestry of the modern dance style of stepping, as well as tap, a dance style appropriately dominated by African-American performers, from Mr. Bojangles to Gregory Hines and beyond. If you've never seen the Nicholas Brothers, who did what Fred Astaire called the greatest dance number ever filmed, your life is incomplete. Thankfully, I've linked a video to them in an interesting article in the show notes. Now don't rest on your laurels thinking, silly old-timey people with their foolish musical instrument bands. There are musical instruments being banned right now, thanks to the gift that keeps on giving, COVID-19. Real talk, it's okay to be glad that 2020 is ending, but our problems aren't going to magically evaporate at midnight New Year's Eve. The 1918 flu ran rampant for three years, and last week, COVID was the leading cause of death in the U.S. So if I were you, I would sew another mask and tip your grocery delivery driver as if your mortal soul depends on it. Back on track, though. To the best of our understanding, COVID is spread through respiratory droplets. If you've seen a live band play even once in your life, you know that exhaling huge amounts of air is a key component for whole sections of the orchestra. But it's not the Sydney Symphony Orchestra that lawmakers in New South Wales are concerned with. Health officials banned woodwind instruments from schools, based on the theory that a woodwind player expels more respiratory droplets than even the brass players. This line of thought isn't exclusive to Oz. At Clemson University in South Carolina, the head band director Mark Speed is trying to work out how to keep the music program alive. Teaching band isn't the easiest thing to do over Skype, after all. No studies had actually been done on the aerosols of a band room, so Speed formed a committee of band directors and raised funds to study band rooms in three states. His associates in the International Coalition of Performing Arts Aerosol Study, Shelley Miller and Jelena Srebrick, brought musicians into the labs and recorded what players were blasting into the air from various instruments, as well as testing actors and chorus members. The playing of lung-powered instruments was found to be worse than talking, though not as bad as coughing. They found that woodwinds were worse than brass instruments, because the warm, moist breath of the player collides with the cooler, drier air from outside, inside the instrument, and condenses only to trickle out through the various openings and holes for the keys. In brass instruments, the air has to travel farther. Imagine an uncoiled trumpet next to, say, a flute. The condensation accumulates at the spit valve, which can, in theory, be emptied safely. The very worst culprit? The worst instrument of all? The oboe, which can quickly fill an entire room with vapor. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. So what was all the kerfuffle over the musicians on Iranian television? Musical instruments have been banned on Iranian state television for more than three decades. Some Shi'i Muslim clerics say broadcasting musical instruments is haram, an act forbidden by Islamic law, even though music is as important to Persian culture as it is to anyone else's. 
According to Iran's supreme leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, although music is halal, the opposite of haram, promoting and teaching it is not compatible with our highest values. Normally, if a live performance is being aired, the singer will be on stage, but the band will be in the wings or behind a screen. Failing that, the line director will cut to stock video of meadows or clouds rather than show the band. Many Iranians find the restriction ridiculous, and a band called Palette used their invitation to perform on TV as a chance to point out how silly it is. They mimed playing their instruments, and that was perfectly fine to air. Thanks to all of our guest voices: Zach from Wasteland Active Radio, Matt from The Campaign: Tales of Questionable Role Models. It's a D&D thing. Andrew from 1999, the year that rocked cinema. Drew from The Misery Machine, and Thomas from the Physical Attraction podcast. All of their shows are linked in the show notes too. And you can always find the script and research links at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. And stay safe. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.